14-year-old Emma Gingrich lives in one of the most conservative orders of the Amish religion. Her community in rural Missouri rejects modern technology, not just cars and tractors, but also running water and electricity. She wears a long dress and bonnet and makes everything by hand. She and her 13 brothers and sisters speak a rare dialect of German and have almost no contact with the outside world. Emma loves school, but she's not allowed to go past the eighth grade. At 14, she's expected to work. She starts cleaning houses for non-Amish people in her area. It's then that she starts to question the Amish way of life. She doesn't understand why there's so many rules. She hates the secrets the community keeps, including deeply disturbing secrets about incest. She's consumed by fear of being judged, of not living up to expectations. She begins to rebel in small ways. She hides a radio in her room and listens to music late at night. When she turns 16, she's supposed to start dating, but few of the boys are interested. She's not like the other girls. It's not just that other people don't understand her, she doesn't really understand herself. Why can't she just accept her fate as an obedient Amish girl? But she can't. And at 18, lonely and depressed, she runs away. She travels all the way to South Texas. Life there is hard. She starts attending high school while she's still trying to learn English. She gets a job at the dollar store. She learns to drive, but she doesn't know how to lock the doors, so someone steals her truck. Emma struggles to make friends, but she's used to being an outsider and she pushes through the loneliness. She gets her high school diploma. She graduates from college. In her mid-20s, it occurs to her that her story might be helpful for others. In 2014, halfway through an MBA, she publishes a memoir. Her big fear in writing it is upsetting her parents. I was conflicted, so I was like, I know I'm not supposed to be Amish, but I really hate that I'm disappointing them. And how, how can I balance that? Her parents are not happy, but the reception for the book is good. Amish readers are inspired by her journey, Non-Amish readers tell Emma her story gives them strength to face their own challenges. A woman who left her Amish roots at 18 years old is in the county for the weekend to help inspire women to live in the present. Emma now she works at a medical supply company and shares her experience with everyone from small town community groups to Megan Kelly on national TV. When I read your story, the, one of my main questions was, did you have joy in your life? Everything seemed so regimented. <sighs> No, I don't remember ever having joy growing up. Wow. There's nothing that I look forward to. Emma Gingrich was born into a world of extreme conformity. It's the sort of life that some people find comforting and others find crushing. She says leaving it was more difficult than she'd ever expected. But she knew she could never fit in where she was, so she left it to write her own story. Journalist Olga Hazan has just written a book about people like Emma and she says being weird can be hard, but it can also be surprisingly empowering. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 
From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how being weird can work to your advantage. In her new book, Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World, Olga Hazan describes weirdness as the experience of not fitting neatly into a box, regardless of what that box is. Maybe you have different political views from your friends or coworkers. Maybe you're a member of a minority group. Maybe you have interests or hobbies that challenge the norms of your gender, age, or race. Weirdness doesn't just make other people see you as different. It also makes you feel like you don't belong. Hazan is a staff writer for The Atlantic who covers health and science. She says she knows firsthand about being weird. She grew up as a Russian Jewish immigrant in a small conservative town in Texas, and her outsider identity stayed with her. In seven years of writing about weirdness, she says she has come to realize that there are unexpected upsides, that her weirdness is in part responsible for her success. Many of the people she interviewed for her book feel the same way. Our interlocutor today is Next Big Idea Club curator, Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist and a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Adam's written four best-selling books on topics ranging from nonconformists to how we succeed by interacting with others. He spoke with Olga Hazan by Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown in May. Hey, Olga, it's great to finally see you. Hi, it's good to see you too. This is definitely the first time we've ever talked, which is exciting for me because even before you wrote this book, I think I'd read at least a book's worth of your Atlantic articles and loved every one of them. Well, thank you so much for reading. Yeah, my book was sort of the culmination of personal stuff and everything I do for the Atlantic. So I was really excited to be able to write it. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it and have lots of questions for you. So I guess the place I want to start is, are you weird? I would say that I am still weird, although people who have talked to me ever since the book came out have questioned that assessment. But yeah, I think there's still, you know, our early childhood experiences shape who we are. So I think I am still weird. Okay, so tell me what's weird about you. I am weird because I grew up as a Russian Jewish immigrant in West Texas, and that was a very weird experience. And it's weird to grow up with zero family friends or house guests or anyone else interacting with you in your life. <laughs> I think that's fair, but that's also just situational weirdness, right? It's not an enduring trait that you carry around because if you, let's say, move to New York or D.C. or Northern California, you would all of a sudden fit right in, right? Yeah, and that's essentially what happened. I moved to D.C. and I fit right in. I went to D.C. for college and a lot of my weirdness kind of went away because there's a ton of other immigrants in D.C., obviously. But I kind of like some of the essential feelings that I had growing up, some of the social anxiety and imposter syndrome that I had from the kind of unusual childhood that I had remained. And so I wanted to explore what it's like to be weird and kind of learn more about that state of being an outsider in a more scientific way. So when you think about being weird, you think about it more in terms of being a misfit in your context than having just quirky qualities as a person. Yeah, I mean, I really struggled with how to define 
weirdness for this book because there's the research on weirdness, but you're right. It does tend to focus on like the person who was wearing a red jacket (laughs) instead of the black jacket. But I wanted to focus on something that was more consistent. So I, I wanted to focus on people who were different from everyone else around them as opposed to just had a quirky hobby. Because if you think about it, if you have a quirky hobby, like riding a unicycle, you could join a club of unicyclists and suddenly not be weird anymore and in fact feel very comfortable and not alienated at all. So I didn't want to pick something that was just generally thought of as unique. I wanted to pick something that was more enduring. Yeah, in your case, right, you actually had to pick up and move in order to fit in. So not such an easy choice for everyone to make. Tell me what was weird about being a Russian Jewish immigrant in West Texas, because I imagine a lot of people can't even imagine that experience. (laughs) Right. Well, I actually didn't tell anyone I was Jewish until high school because that just wasn't a thing. There weren't any Jews. And everyone was, in fact, an evangelical Christian. And it was sort of taken as a given that you were too. Usually the first question that Texans ask people, at least in the part where I grew up, is what church do you go to? (laughs) So I became a Christian for a while. There weren't other really foreigners other than people who were Mexican just because of the geography. So just a lot of the things my family did, the kind of food that I brought to school, the kind of uh, clothes that we wore, like everything marked us as outsiders. And it was like a really tough experience at times. So how did you cope with it? Mostly I did not. So Honestly, I left and that is how I cope with it. And that's a real thing that people do. Obviously, right now we have a ton of polarization in the U.S. and a a lot of right versus left conflict. And some of the people that I interviewed for the book actually were Trump supporters who moved from California to Texas so that they could be more accepted by other Trump supporters. And they felt like, you know, if they were wearing Trump T-shirts or praying or something like that openly in California that they wouldn't be accepted. So they actually hooked up with this organization called Conservative Move, which helps Californians move to Texas so they can be with other Republicans. It sounds far-fetched, but it's actually now like a business model. So Olga, you interviewed some really fascinating people for the book. I would love to hear in particular about an Amish woman that you wrote about. Emma, this Amish woman that I interviewed, grew up in this really conservative Missouri community. And If you want to be Amish, you have to so buy in to the idea of being Amish. It is not like a half-hearted thing. You basically are educated through eighth grade, then you stop going to school. And if you're a woman, you have babies with a guy who is one of five boys that you can choose when you're 16 to marry. Wow. And you basically cook and clean for the rest of your life and babysit. She looked at that future and she was like, I don't want to do this. It's not just the technology thing. It's not just the like farming lifestyle that doesn't appeal. It's like, I don't want my opportunities to be this limited. And she always just felt this feeling of doubt inside of her. So when she was, I think, 16 or 17, she just walked out of her family's farmhouse and she had a smuggled a cell phone and used it to call this friend of a friend who basically took her down to Texas, to South Texas, where they happened to live. And she kind of started life all over again, except she was a U.S. citizen who didn't speak English because they speak Pennsylvania Dutch. She didn't understand any social rules or norms. She was completely alienated from the internet, technology, how people interact on a day-to-day basis. And it really just goes to show how awful it can be both to feel like an outsider in your community, but then even when you try to break out of that community and be more free or, or join a different community, that period of transition is still really difficult. Yeah. 
So what did you learn from her about coping with being an outsider or going from being an outsider in one context to then living that in another? So she really was one of the most difficult stories in the book. She had one of the roughest times. But I found that she really used this strategy of changing the way she thought about being an outsider. It went from being where she was trying to hide that she was Amish or apologize for it, especially among the modern Americans or whatever you want to call them that she was meeting. She kind of reestablished herself. She had to kind of learn to think about her outsiderdom in a new way and in a more positive way. So she now is out. She's like a normal 20-something. So she's dating and meeting people. And she has to be like, look, being Amish, having this extremely traumatic and difficult thing that I went through made me who I am. It's not the entirety of who I am. You can't make Amish jokes about me because that's not cool. But I'm now tougher and stronger because I went through this. And once she started asserting herself in that way, things got a little bit better for her than when she was apologizing for her differences. So it sounds like then in psychology, we describe that as a combination of reframing and reclaiming. Is that what she did? Yeah, it's like a combination of cognitive reappraisal. And then there's also like all this work by, I think it's Dan McAdams and others that talks about life narratives and how you, I mean, this is like the Joan Didion thing with we tell ourselves stories in order to live, but it's in a psychological way, which is that the kinds of stories that you tell about the stuff that's happened to you is what determines how it affects you. And so sometimes all it takes is telling the story a little bit differently to yourself and to other people. When I think about the McAdams work, Olga, I think about one finding in particular, which is he basically had people chart their life stories over time on a happiness graph. And there were some people whose life stories just kind of went downward. He called those contamination narratives, and that was obviously bad. And then there was another group of people who had sort of consistently positive, straight-line, happy experiences. And then there was a third group that had a much more sort of fluctuating but upward arc. And I thought what was really interesting was the people who had these redemption narratives, where something bad happened, but then it turned good, were actually significantly happier than the people who were just happy all the way along. And I wonder if you saw that dynamic in studying these outsiders. Yeah, you're totally right. And that is something that I noticed is that they would inevitably face these challenges because they were doing something unusual and trying to squeeze into this space that wasn't naturally designed for them, right? So something in each of their stories, something bad happened. But then they would reclaim it and say, well, but this just goes to show how much harder I have to work and that's a good thing. Or this is going to help me to make it to the next step. And I don't know if they, most of the people that I talked to were pretty happy. I would say they were also like very self-actualized, more so than happy. They were just very committed to whatever it was they were doing, probably more so than other people. There wasn't a lot of like, eh, maybe I'll be a race car driver, but maybe I'll do something else. It was like, no, this is what I'm doing. And it provides meaning for my life. So I don't know. I Again, it, it's 36 people, so not like a totally scientific sample. But I did notice a lot of commitment to their cause in each of the stories. You have a really interesting story in the book about the Beatles. Would you mind giving us the highlights? Yeah, totally. Even though we think of the Beatles when they started out as really clean cut and like they all had the same haircut and they were so tidy and ready for like moms and teens, they actually were pretty uh, hardcore. They uh, would swear on stage. 
So it was actually their manager, Brian Epstein, who came in and said that they needed to clean up their act and uh, become more clean cut because that's what was selling at the time. It was, I guess, mid to late 50s. And so that's what they did. They had to like all cut their hair the same way. They had to all wear a suit and kind of look the same. They had to bow at the end of every performance. And they did that. And people who are familiar with the Beatles' later work, you start to see things like the Yellow Submarine. The whole White Album is pretty crazy, revolving is crazy. There's a song that they did later on called Number Nine or Revolution Nine, where the only lyrics are like various forms of the word number nine over and over again. So you start to see them doing drugs and like growing their hair out and floating off into space because they got super famous. And then suddenly they're like, you know what? We don't have to be normal anymore. We can be as weird as we want. What I think is so intriguing about that, Olga, is a lot of people look at that story and they say, look, you know, either the fame went to their head or they got successful and then they sort of went off the deep end. And what you're saying, I think, is something different, which is they had those weird qualities internally all along, but they didn't feel the freedom to express them until later. Yeah, I mean, that's how this one researcher, Ian Inglis, that I read up on for this part of the book explains it, is that they were actually always weird, but they were told to be normal so that they could get to be successful. And so other people who feel like they're naturally weird can try the same strategy if they can handle five to six years of normalcy (laughs) first. (laughs) It's, It's such a fun example of how status and power don't always corrupt people. Sometimes they just reveal the things we've been keeping inside. Right, exactly. That and a lot of LSD, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a there's a confounding variable in, in that right. particular <laughs> sample. So people can be weird in lots of different ways. And they can try to escape their weirdness, or they can embrace it and use it as a sort of superpower to overcome obstacles and be more resilient. But does being weird mean you'll always feel like an outsider? Or can being weird help you fit in better? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Whether or not we identify as weird, we can all benefit from being part of a community that's inclusive while still challenging us to think for ourselves. That's just the kind of community we're building at nextbigideaclub.com. It's a place where you can let your freak flag fly while connecting with readers and writers who are fascinated by new ideas, all curated by big thinkers like Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Dan Pink. To see what I'm talking about, join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Your first three months of membership are absolutely free. That's nextbigideaclub.com dot com slash podcast. Julia Landauer is 14 years old, too young to get a learner's permit. But here she is gripping the steering wheel of a professional race car, zooming around a stadium track. The goal is not just to avoid crashing, it's to beat the men and boys she's racing against. 
And that's exactly what she does as she speeds past the finish line to become the first girl and the youngest person ever to win the Skip Barber Racing Series. Julia keeps winning through her teens and into her 20s. She drives carts and stock cars, eventually moving up to Formula One. She's not the only female driver on the circuit, but she's one of the best. In 2015, at age 24, she becomes the first woman to win a NASCAR track championship at Virginia's Motor Mile Speedway. Not bad for a brainy girl from New York City, where most of her friends don't even know how to drive. Julia loves to race, but in some ways, every lap is a struggle. Other drivers call her sexist names. Sponsors keep their distance, convinced a man is a better bet for their money. Without the big money, she can't get the best equipment. And without the best equipment, she can't break into the top tier. Races she knows she could have won end in disappointment. But disappointment isn't Julia's thing. She keeps on racing, but she also forges ahead with a parallel life. She gets into Stanford, and while she's there, she gives a TEDx talk and travels to the Philippines to compete on the reality TV show Survivor. Women are routinely portrayed as emotionally and physically fragile. And the thing is, we're not. (laughs) And it is so satisfying to do something exceptionally well that people don't expect me to be able to do at all. In 2017, she makes the Forbes 30 under 30 list in the sports category. Today, she still races professionally, but she may be better known as a motivational speaker traveling the U.S. to rev up corporate audiences. We will all find that we come to a crossroads in life, or several times in life, where we have to decide, are we going to do the thing that scares us, or are we going to walk away? And when you get to that crossroads, I highly encourage that you ask yourself the question, why not do the thing that scares you? Of course, Julia has drive, and not just the automotive kind. She wants very badly to succeed, and she's willing to put herself in harm's way to make that happen. But it's not just her drive that makes her weird. In a way, it's also her weirdness that drives her and gives her the strength to face her fears. She doesn't care what people think of her. And because people can't put her into a box, they're less inclined to judge her. Olga Hazan says Julia has taken her weirdness and made it her superpower. Okay, I have to ask you, race car driver, you interviewed one of those too. Tell me the story there. This was one of my favorites because I actually went to go see her race in Canada, which was not where I thought I would be going. But that actually fits into the interesting thing about female race car drivers, which is it's very, very hard and expensive to be a NASCAR driver. It's hard for everyone, not just women. I would say that her story was maybe a little bit more complicated than the like, oh, she faces sexism kind of thing that might be expected. So she does face sexism. People are sexist to her, but kind of more so it's just like very hard to become a NASCAR driver. Like you have to raise all that money, all the stuff like the car, the team, the garage, all that stuff you have to raise money for. So it's like being a politician, you're fundraising all the time. (laughs) So she kind of uses her, not like uses in a sketchy way, but just like uses in a smart way, I guess. Her outsider status to 
build up her brand. So she does a lot of stuff with women in STEM and women in technology. She'll give talks and speeches. She's more open to doing events and more open to new forms of fundraising that some of the more macho NASCAR drivers might not be open to. And to me, it kind of seems like that's because she's already such an oddball in this field. Everyone's already like, oh, a woman, that it's like, okay, well, why wouldn't I give a speech about the importance of asphalt? (laughs) Because everyone already thinks I'm super strange. And I just had no idea what goes into being a NASCAR driver. And then to do it when you're like physically smaller and physically different than everyone else (laughs) in the field is so crazy. But yeah, Julia Landauer, she was a total badass and unfortunately did not win her race. But it was a ton of fun to watch and to write about. So you just touched on something that reminds me of an, an interesting dynamic. I'm thinking of some research by Ashley Rosette, who studied what happens when double minorities take leadership roles. And so in one of her studies, she looked at black women, for example. And let's be clear, in most ways, that's double jeopardy, right? It's just, it's even harder, it seems, in the data than belonging to just one minority group. But there was one way that black women were sort of pleasantly surprised by the fact that people didn't know what stereotypes to apply. And so they got this extra latitude to sometimes sort of act in ways that might be stereotypically male and other times act in ways that might be stereotypically black. And they sometimes were able to use that as a resource to maybe gain some flexibility. And it it sounds like that's a dynamic you picked up on as well. I'm curious for anybody who feels like they don't fit in. How can they take those stereotypes and maybe use them to their advantage? I'm so glad you brought that up because that's totally something that I picked up on doing this reporting. But I found a different thread of psychology research that kind of applies here, which is that once you start breaking rules and defying those stereotypes, like you mentioned, it seems like that kind of opens the door to like a huge amount of creativity and just living according to your own rules that I definitely picked up on with these people. So the actual research is that people who are in an unusual culture or in an unfamiliar environment or even are just in a lab experiment rejected by their uh, lab director or whatever, the researcher, tend to come up with more creative ideas and more unusual solutions to problems. And the quote that I really liked about this from one of the researchers is that once you see that things are not functioning according to the rules, you start to break the rules in all these helpful ways to you. So I just found that I was interviewing this one female truck driver she created this really popular YouTube series just about being a female truck driver and was able to like bring in this additional income and build her brand and like connect with other drivers and build this whole community around being a female truck driver. And I think part of that was just because she was like, everyone already thinks that girls can't drive and I'm constantly facing these sexist remarks and everyone's stereotyping me. So you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to have a YouTube video series where I let people in on my life and let them follow me around. And I think Part of that is just this freedom of like, I can defy all your expectations because I'm already defying some of them. So I thought that was a pretty cool part of it. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting that that example also tracks with what you saw in NASCAR, which is, it seems like a lot of the latitude, if you're an oddball or a misfit, is for going horizontally as opposed to climbing up vertically. And I guess that makes me think of some of the classic Hollander work on idiosyncrasy credits. The idea that if you want to deviate from the norms of your group or your field, you often get punished for it unless you've demonstrated a level of performance or contribution or generosity that leads people to say, hey, okay, now we value you so much that we're going to give you extra latitude. 
Did you find that any of your your weirdos that you interviewed were able to earn those idiosyncrasy credits? Did they have to sort of act more normal or try harder to fit in until they'd proven themselves? Or were a lot of them just opting out and saying, you know what, I'm just not going to live the stereotype at all? I talk about idiosyncrasy credits in the book, and one of the people in particular I thought really exemplifies this. She also had a really tough time. So this is a woman named Beverly who is a sociology professor who studies BDSM in the most conservative congressional district in America, which is Wichita Falls, Texas. And the kids are quoting Bible verses back to her. And she's saying like, oh, feminism, let's talk about feminism. And they're like, that's a lie. (laughs) And so she's like, stop, because this is her course work. Like the whole body of literature is something that is kind of anathema to these kids. So what she starts to do is to change the way she teaches the class a little bit. So she doesn't like abandon who she is, but she tries to conform a little bit or meet them kind of halfway before she throws the full extent of everything at them. So she will start off with talking about masculinity or like, hey, do you ever notice that women wear makeup, but men don't? Like some gentler (laughs) topics that are maybe a little bit easier to handle before you get to like queer theory. And, you know, I think that strategy works for her. I think that the students have become a lot more receptive. They give her really great feedback. They say that she's really opened their eyes, but I don't think she'd be able to break through to them like that if she was just like, you must agree with me or else, you know? There's a great literature about that phenomenon on tempered radicalism uh, by Meyerson and Scully, where they, they talk about how a lot of times if you unfold your full vision or all of the, you know, all the values or traits that you possess, people might be a little bit, they might freak out or they might perceive you as too extreme. And so oftentimes what major outsiders will do is they'll conform in small ways uh, and begin to start making themselves a little bit more vulnerable or self-disclosing a little more, or maybe just doing a bit of extra self-expression, both to warm people up and also see how they react. I'm curious about your observations about the extent to which that makes sense. It's almost like systematic desensitization versus more of a flooding approach where you just put it all on the table and say, hey, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, I think different things are going to work for different people and different people that I talked to in my book kind of took different approaches. I think part of it depends on like how able you are to do that, like blending in and like gradual approach. One person who had no choice was this male preschool teacher that I interviewed who was a dude. He's a big dude with a beard. He's very happy and friendly and kid friendly and there's nothing super macho or grisly about him. But there was no way for him to like ease people into the fact that he's male. You know, and there's another person I interviewed who's a doctor with dwarfism. And that was almost the reverse approach where people were, especially when he was applying to medical school in the like 80s, uh, it was like a much less enlightened time. People were just automatically like, no, you can't work here. He was rejected from... Uh, I think 60 different medical schools just on the basis of his height. And he finally, I mean, he made it. He is now a surgeon at Johns Hopkins. But I think what he tried to do is essentially get in the door and then kind of prove himself and show everyone how great he was. So for him, it was the visible thing about him was the thing keeping him out. And he had to like convince everyone to ignore it. So you obviously have more latitude when it comes to invisible stigma. I think one of the things that this book did for me, though, was it made me actually start to see being weird as more of an advantage than a disadvantage. 
And I started thinking about all the ways that being an outsider can give you access to creative ideas and all of the delights of standing out as opposed to fitting in. Yeah. So there are, like I said, a number of advantages that come with weirdness. Creativity is the big one that I saw, which is just this like, you know, incredible ability to to see things from a different perspective and come up with creative solutions to problems, you know. There's real life examples like Nabokov, who wrote Lolita while he was in the U.S. Picasso experimented with cubism while he was in France, I believe, or some other part of Europe that isn't Spain, which is where he's from. And to lab experiments where people are put in an unusual situation and then they actually thrive and get more creative as a result. So I do think it's helpful to put yourself in environments where you're out of your comfort zone. And in fact, some of these studies recommend if you're not necessarily like a female NASCAR driver, maybe you could go study somewhere. Like a big part of the reason why we encourage kids to study abroad in normal times (laughs) is that it helps open up their perspectives, right? But you could do that as an adult. There's nothing unique about being an 18-year-old that means that that's the only time you can study abroad. You can go to a different environment and learn from the people there and open up your perspective a little bit. But another way that this can work without taking an international vacation is just having a diversity of viewpoints in your workplace or wherever you're trying to make decisions. And there's like a ton of research on this, as you know, that having dissenting viewpoints just helps make for better decisions. It it helps keep you from going off the cliff of sunk costs. It helps keep everyone from sinking into groupthink. It just creates those moments of, wait a minute, should we be doing this or should we be doing something else? So one thing you could do is just hire people who disagree with you and who are are willing to pump the brakes and throw up yield signs for the betterment of your organization. So we've seen how people can take their weirdness and turn it into a strength. But surely that's easier in some environments than others. How do your circumstances, like what country you live in or even what school you go to, affect how you are perceived? And for parents of children struggling with being different, is there anything they can do to help them push through some of the painful challenges that so many kids and teens face during those difficult years? So many questions about how to embrace your weirdness and make weirdness work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. In her book, Weird, Olga Hazan writes about what it means to be weird and the sometimes surprising benefits that often go along with it. Her interviewer, Adam Grant, is a world-renowned organizational psychologist who studies workplace culture. And he's found, not surprisingly, that social norms outside the workplace make a big difference in the way people work together. I'm struck by a few things as, as I think about what it means to be weird and why that's a good thing in society. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about cross-cultural differences. It seems like, in a way, your book is a case for American individualism and its advantages and triumphs, and that, you know, in some ways, we might not want to be as collectivistic as China or Japan. I think your perspective is more nuanced than that, though, and I'd love to hear you articulate it. 
I do acknowledge in the book that it's easier to be weird in a loose culture than a tight one. Tight cultures, just as a recap, are the Amish and other really conservative religions or really tight-knit cultures. I think Singapore is one that I mentioned. And then loose cultures, of course, are the opposite. So like Burning Man or something else where everyone can just do whatever they want with their own art installation. But first of all, I say in the book that they both have advantages and disadvantages. I think one thing that you're seeing now, an advantage of tight cultures, is that they're much better at stopping things like pandemics. When you have a culture where everyone kind of does their part and everyone is willing to act in coordination, it's much easier to do things like test, trace, and isolate, which is pretty much the only way to to stop COVID. And one reason why we're having so much trouble with that in the U.S. is that we are so individualistic and we're like, well, I'm going to go get my hair cut. You know, people in <laughs> tighter cultures just don't do that kind of thing if they feel like they're not supposed to. And I would also say that it's not so much American individualism. I would say that the best cultures for people who are oddballs are cultures that just are more liberal culturally or socially. Some of the most loose nations are like Finland and Sweden and places like that, which I wouldn't necessarily call like individualistic. I just feel like they're a little bit more live and let live. But I don't know. I I just I feel like there's this certain like everyone's business is their own business that is kind of makes it easier to just have whatever beliefs you have and to like be the way you want to be in a certain country. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I, li- I like your point that it's more about the conformity expected in a culture yes. than it is about being individualistic or collectivistic. Yes. So I want to come back to this point about what if I'm not weird enough? Because I, whenever I do a conversation like this, I want to think of myself as a stand-in for the listener. And so, you know, I think one of your messages is embrace your inner weirdness, right? Don't be afraid of being an outsider. I think people struggle on both extremes with this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people feel like they're just too far outside and they can't fit in. Other people feel like they're quintessential insiders and they're not weird enough. And the, the psychologist Marilyn Brewer, I think, has a great resolution to this paradox when she says, look, we, sh- we should have optimal distinctiveness. What we want is we want to simultaneously fit in and stand out. And the way that people solve this is they join distinctive groups. And that way they feel a tremendous sense of belonging within the group, but then the group is different from all other groups and therefore they get to distinguish themselves. What's your take on optimal distinctiveness? Is that is that the answer? Is that what we should all be looking to do or no? Yeah, I, I talk about optimal distinctiveness. I do think that's a great solution, especially for people who are naturally drawn to those groups. I, for a while, tried to make friends with a bunch of other Russians And that has actually been really helpful. There was like a wave of Russian immigrants who came to the U.S. at the same time as my family. And I befriended a lot of other people from that same cohort. And it's actually been a really great support group for me just because there's like a lot of stuff about Russian culture that is very distinctive. It's like if... I talk to my American friends about some of the stuff that I talk to my Russian friends about. It would freak them out. It's just like too much for Americans. So that has actually been really nice and like a really good comfort to me. So I wonder if I'm seeking out optimal distinctiveness in that way. And I get what you're saying where like some people might be lying awake at night thinking, am I too normal to reap the benefits of weirdness? I don't think too many people believe that, or at least I I don't know. I, I meet so many women that you would think like you're completely normal. You're completely like everyone else. There's absolutely nothing about you that is less than in any way, but they have incredible amounts of imposter syndrome and just feelings of like, I don't belong here. And I think that feeling comes from this internal sense of weirdness rather than like 
people being like, oh, why do you have like a third eyeball or something like that? You know, (laughs) when you do face a lot of sexism and prejudice, you start to internalize it and feel like, well, there must actually be something wrong with me because people treat me like this. And I think that perpetuates a lot of feelings of imposter syndrome or weirdness or social anxiety, even when it would seem that there's no reason for that to continue. Yeah, I think that's sad, but true. So shifting gears a little bit, something else I wanted to to ask you about a little bit is I feel like one of the the really interesting questions that this book surfaced for me is how do we think differently about parenting when it comes to raising kids who might not fit in? And I know you write a lot about what people's upbringings are like and how that may affect whether they feel like they fit in or stand out. But what advice do you have for parents who are maybe discovering that their kid doesn't fit in in the classroom or who might be living in a community where they don't fit in for a variety of reasons? What what can and should they do? So many parents have asked me this since the book has come out, and I'm so glad that they're reading it and thinking about it for their teens and tweens and anyone else at the reading level that it requires. I uh, am going to get in trouble for this because I don't have kids. And anytime I talk about anything to do with child rearing, people yell at me on Twitter. Okay. I feel like the message that I took away was just that all the people that I talked to were like dweebs and freaks and geeks in high school and middle school. And were just like, I don't know. I'm not like everyone else. What am I going to do? I'm a girl who loves trucks. And like, I'm just going to hide that, I guess, until I graduate. (laughs) And the answer to the question is just that after you're done with high school, after you're done with that, everyone in the same crucible together, you can really become who you want. Like you can quit the church that doesn't accept your sexuality. You can, you know, quit the... The marching band, if you if you never wanted to do it. A lot of people quit their genders in my book. I feel like finding a loose enough culture and one that will accept you for who you actually are is the solution to feeling miserable as a, as a kid. And as someone who was miserable when they were in, in middle school and high school, I don't know how to like help that while it's happening other than just knowing that it's going to be over soon. I don't know if that's uplifting enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologize. I think, look, it's, I think it, like prejudice, it's a hard problem. Yeah. And I think your, your take is, is realistic. So I, it does make me wonder, though, if there, are, if there are things you'd like to say to teachers or principals or other administrators about, look, a lot of us sort of reach peak, peak discomfort with weirdness in middle school or high school. <laughs> is there anything that could be done to try to make that a little better along the way? I just feel like, Kids do not need any help categorizing each other. We had in my high school a most beautiful and most handsome category for our superlatives for uh, graduation. And it was not the kid with Down syndrome gets most handsome as a nice thing. It was literally the most beautiful and handsome in the school. And then everyone else is there's three runners up. I mean, obviously, don't do that stuff. That's horrible. And I I mean, I will say that my high school has since gotten a lot better. And they had, I think, an LGBTQ prom queen a couple of years ago, and it made the Dallas Morning News because it was like very a very big deal. So, I mean, I think the society is generally moving in a better trajectory, but I think anything you can do that will stop the relentless categorization of people and exacerbate differences among people is, is a positive thing. Well, Olga, this has been really enlightening and also entertaining. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. And yeah, this was super fun. 
Thanks for writing it. I hope everyone reads and enjoys Weird. From Wondery, this is the next big idea. If you have thoughts about Weird or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, Olga Hazan, and the other authors who appear on this show at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Join now and get three months of membership absolutely free. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Special thanks today to Olga Hazan. Her new book, Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World, is available everywhere books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Sarah Singer Schiff. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kavnak. Senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. And executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. 